I'm your host, Rena Friedman Watts, and this is the Better Call Daddy Show. Hey, this is Big Daddy, Wayne Friedman. That's my grandpa. Grandpa, you ready for more daddy drama? My dad is my number one hero and number one fan. And I'm a pretty cool dude. All right, season four, baby, here we go. More stories you're not going to believe. And maybe you will after you listen. Five stars. Five and a half stars, two thumbs up. You are a pretty cool dude. Love you, mommy. Don't stand on the table and damn the public. You'll get some words of wisdom to live by. Here we go again. Better call daddy. You know what your problem is? You like me. Yeah, I do. Each week, I interview a guest, share the stories with my dad, and then he weighs in at the end of every episode with his wisdom and wit. Hey, Grandpa. Everyone from influential players to inspirational fathers, and of course, controversial people. Grandpa, my mommy's calling. Creating that legacy one call at a time. And welcome to the Better Call Daddy Show. Stay tuned. Where's the music? Better call daddy cause he knows you best. He's bringing the test. He sees possibilities. Better call daddy, he'll be by your side. Better call daddy, you're the apple of his eye. He sees possibilities. After more than 20 years dismantling and destroying illicit networks worldwide, Jihee Bustamante decided to commit her talents and creativity to building her life and her dreams with her husband. They started and stopped the CIA on the same day, and once they discovered the truth, they decided to teach their kids what it was on their own homeschooling. Jihee Bustamante, welcome to the Better Call Daddy Show. Oh my gosh. I listened to that concrete interview. I thought it was really- Oh yeah. Thanks. He was really easy to talk to. I think that's what, you know, the host makes it, right? Yeah. So. And it's cool that you got to do that in person. Yeah. He lived 15 minutes from, or his studio was like 15 minutes from where we, where we lived. So it was really convenient. Nice. Nice. I feel like in person is, it's a different connection. I agree. And he had, I'm sure you can see in the video, like his studio is set up in this really, like it has a vibe to it. You know, you walk in and you're like, oh, like, where's my whiskey and cigar? <laughs> this kind of like chill vibe. That's <laughs> so, so much fun. I love doing in yeah. person, but I just feel like they're harder to do. They, they happen so much less frequently. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Okay. So I went to a bridal shower this week. And I thought it would be interesting to get your advice and wishes. Like if you were giving advice to like a newly married couple, which is so gosh, Oh my gosh. Right. Like go back to when you first met your husband, which by the way, hysterical that you mentioned that you literally, he made you throw up. Oh yeah. (laughs) Because I was so attracted to him. so hot. It made me throw up. Oh my God. I was dying because my husband actually told me a story about how a girl like was making him nauseous, but it was like, not for the good. (laughs) He was like, you gotta (laughs) listen to that. That's terrible. Oh my gosh. Yeah, Yeah. We were listening to the interview together and I was like, that is so funny, but I have actually been so nervous around somebody that I was attracted to. I mean, I was younger, but I would literally run the other direction. Like I felt like he could see it 
on my face. Like it was written on my forehead that he knew. Yeah. Yeah. I would go to like email him, like during like the worst times I would go to like type him an email. I would start typing and then feel so nauseous. I'm like, nope, delete like backspace. I will never talk to that guy ever again. Like it's too bad. Cause he's so cute. <laughs> Not meant to be. <laughs> oh my God. I loved that part. Okay. So the questions I thought were really fun. It says for the future, Mr. And Mrs. What is something to remember that marriage is based on? Gosh. So, you know, it's funny because we had a very small wedding ceremony. It was like 11 people. It was like our siblings, our parents, grandparents, that was it. And so we had the same thing. People gave us advice and the advice I would have given at the beginning of marriage, advice like 12, this will be our 13 years, is totally different because we've been through so much together now. Even beyond the agency, I think actually like running our own business together has been even more challenging than when we worked at the agency together, which I find really interesting when I think back on it. But my advice would definitely be like the thing the marriage has to be based on, I think is like patience and understanding. You married your spouse because you love them. So at the core, you have some commonalities and you have love for them. So as time passes and challenges come up and they change, I think that was the biggest surprise to me over the years was I have changed. I mean, as soon as I had children, I was a different person. Andy has changed over time, right? The core is still the same, but there's lots of changes that happen. So you have to be patient and loving and remember that at their core, right? They're they're doing what they think is best. You guys are driving your life together the way you think the you know is the best way. And you have to just trust that there's no there's no malice there, right? Like when your wife says like, "Oh, I suddenly love tennis" or "I suddenly hate tennis," which we used to do every day. They're not trying to stick it to you. Like <laughs> they just are they are changing into a new person. And like, you know, you watch your children change over the course of their childhood adults are the same way and we never think about it, right? Between when we got married, we were 30. I'm going to live with Andy until we're hopefully in like our nineties. There's a lot of personal change that happens and you have to be patient and understanding and, you know, to stay committed to your partner, I, I think. So I know, I know you're married as well. I would love to hear like your optic, like you have I think you have four, I have two, you know, like I'm assuming you guys have been through a lot together as well. Oh my God. So I think trust. And it's really funny because before Andy's interview that I did before yours, I went to this coffee shop that I frequent that's like a street over from here. And I was like, what would you ask a CIA operative or a former CIA operative? And they were like, is he trustworthy? I think that marriage is really based upon trust. And yeah. do you trust your husband? Yeah. So, I mean, I think that's, that's really poignant. Like I trust Andy from, from our earliest times together. I trust Andy with my life, with my children's lives. I trust in my heart, zero doubts that he will never do anything that harms our family or that harms me. You know, not to say that he does stuff. He makes me mad all the time. <laughs> That's not, but I always trust in my heart that he's trying to do the right thing, right? Always. So yeah, I think I agree with you. That's, that's 100%. If you can't 
trust the intentions of your partner, then there's, there's an issue, right? There's a, you know, you're, you're not on a solid foundation. So, because that trust is going to get you through all the changes, everything that they do, if you trust their motivation, that'll get you through the hard times, right? That's going to get you through the hard conversation. Also, that yeah. kind of reminds me of how you describe your work in the CIA, because you said it's really about the greater good. Mm-hmm. Yeah. CIA is an interesting place because it's full of like the core of uh, like a case officer's job, right? The core of the agency is gathering intelligence. And the case officer is the person who is literally sitting in front of another person gathering that intelligence. And that's based on creating trust with the asset that's based on, you know, a certain level of manipulation, you know, using a lot of tools that salespeople use, learning people's personalities, learning their motivations and their vulnerabilities and getting to know them and getting them to trust you enough to put their life in your hands, because that's oftentimes what's happening, right? The assets putting their their life and their livelihood and that of their families into your hands to give us information, the United States, that we can then use to make better policy decisions. So it's it's interesting because that culture, what we those that culture and those skills that we use on assets can also bleed through into how you interact with everybody. So your colleagues, your management, your spouse, right? Because you're using them so often. Something that happened a few years ago, Andy and I were talking to a friend of ours, and we were trying to explain to them our concept of every human relationship is transactional. And they were, they did not like that idea. They were, they had this very romantic idea of like, oh no, people do it for love and for this and for that. And we're like, no, no, no. Like at its base, at its core, every interaction you have with somebody is transactional. You get something from them. They get something from you. It's not a good or a bad thing. It just is, you know, working for the agency, that's, you have to be more aware because there are very skilled people you're working with. So, you know, when somebody's talking to you or when they come over to your desk and they're like, Hey, how's it going? <laughs> Suddenly you're like, Oh, Hey, <laughs> like, do you need something? <laughs> I feel like that is such a tough reality of growing up. Yeah. Like as a kid, yeah. you don't get that. I actually am no. trying to teach my kids that. Yeah. I really do think cognitively may like think you must develop into being able to understand that at a certain age, because children really just, I think cognitively, maybe they just can't conceptualize those things, right? Like the first time that kids learn about lying, it's not easy to explain, especially if they catch you on like a white lie or something. Like, what are you doing there? Or like, oh, let me explain about okay lying and not okay lying. And you never lie to me. That's so funny because yesterday my 10-year-old asked my three-year-old if he was lying about having eaten something. I'm like, three-year-olds do not lie yet. (laughs) No, they don't. (laughs) I'm not sure exactly when that starts happening, but it's not three. And even as they get older and you do start to catch them in things, they're not lying maliciously, right? They're kind of like embarrassed. They're skirting around an issue, but they're not like, I'm going to tell this lie so I can get what I want. They don't think that way at that age. It's not until you're much older, I think, that you're able to make the connection that you can manipulate or that you can lie. You know, so thankfully the kids aren't (laughs) quite at that level. (laughs) It's already hard enough. Yes. So another thing I wanted to talk to you about, because it did happen this week was, you know, you said we have no privacy. And Uh, if that is true, why are these school shootings not being 
stopped better? I think it's so complex, the school shootings, because there's always, there's so often the history, right? Where somebody, I think there was a recent one where the student had, had changed schools. He had, he had had, you know, behavioral issues at another school. He had been kicked out of school, enrolled in a new school. I think that was the Colorado one. You know, and there's this history that what's so hard is lots of kids have that background that don't end up shooting people. Andy and I talk a lot about how could schools be made safer. And I think my, I have a master of social work and, you know, the, the reality is that it's, it's so difficult to tell, I think, who's going to cross the line. There are lots of people who have issues. And then the other issue is there's lots of people who have issues, but there's not really enough resources to address those kids and give them the help that they need. And then it's really difficult to, because it's so difficult to tell who's going to end up crossing the line, are you going to treat everybody as if they're a potential shooter, right? That's kind of not helpful. If you treat, you know, if you have 10 kids, one of them might end up being a shooter, but you treat all 10 of them as if they were going to commit a crime. It's, It's not very helpful for their recovery. It would be better to actually give them access to the tools that they need to have a better life, to have better mental health, yeah, it's, it's a really difficult issue to prevent. There's so many facets to the issue as well, right? I mean, some people focus on the gun issues. Some people focus on keeping those kids out of school. Some people focus on the juvenile justice system. Some people focus on, you know, the, the social welfare system. There, But it's all a part of it. It has to be a multifaceted approach. You can't just fix one thing. I just, um, oh, oh my God, when it happened, I was literally up to like, five in the morning reading every single possible thing that's been put on the news. And then I saw that the shooter had sent a text message to someone and that someone contacted the police and she was told it was a non-emergency. That just really bothers me. And then another person who I've interviewed before who was being threatened on, you know, their son was being threatened Mm. on Snapchat and then he ended up killing himself. Mm. Those messages were through the internet. There were definitely red flag words that I feel like should have caught the attention of the authorities. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of, I feel like what police officers go through, I make the assumption that it's very similar to what like FBI officers or CA officers go through where the public, it's not transparent to the public, what their lives really look like, their professional lives really look like. And so even though somebody can, can look in hindsight and say, there were all these messages, we contacted the police, you know, they might be getting those types of reports really frequently. And then that somebody, a person or people, human beings have to sift through all of these reports to identify what's really a threat, what's not a threat, what's a priority, what's not a priority. And and I assume based on my experience at the agency and my experience in talking with FBI agents, that they are probably inundated with work. And so it's really easy for things to, to slip through the cracks. They have to have a certain level of, for FBI agents, for example, you know, they have to have a certain level of evidence to be able to even get a warrant. So even though I think, you know, I talked before about how nothing's really private. If somebody wants to discover something about you on the internet, they could, especially somebody who has the government behind them, but that still requires enough evidence to get a warrant to look at your private information. 
they can't just, if your Instagram account is private, the police officer can't just look you up and, you know, break into your stuff. They have to get, have enough evidence to get a warrant to do that. And that takes time. It takes a lot of effort. It takes evidence convincing somebody to give you that warrant to encroach on somebody's private space. So it's complex and it's unfortunate. There are definitely I think improvements that can be made. But the other thing about police is that the police are so localized. So every police force is really based on, you know, the city or the county. And so maybe you have a police force that's really on it and does great work. And we never hear about those people because they don't have tragedies happen, right? That's how it works at the CIA too, right? All of our successes, nobody hears anything about. They only hear about the failures. So maybe there's police forces out there that are really doing an amazing job and have amazing programs in place. Nobody hears about them because it doesn't make the news. What we hear about are the failures, but they're so localized. Those counties, those cities, they have to put the funding in, put the right programs in place to help people. Can you talk about any of your successes? <laughs> no, unfortunately. <laughs> they're there for sure. Another question too was, do you think that some of these intelligence services or divisions should be combined? I'm a fan of the, the specialization. So, you know, CIA deals with international matters. FBI deals with domestic matters. I like having those separate because it bureaucracy as there is, it, it would be more so if you combine them. And because of the, the laws and regulations that regulate those agencies, because they, they can't do whatever they want to. I know no, no matter what people think, right? Like CIA officers and FBI officers can't just do whatever they want to. We are bound by law. You know, there, there are different sets of laws. So I like keeping them separate personally. And then, but I like having something like the DNI where, you know, there's a mechanism where intelligence can be shared across the board because they don't really need to know. I mean, that's another a common thing in the CIA is, do you need to know? And the FBI as well. Do you need to know? You're on a case. Maybe five people need to know about that case. Nobody else really needs to know. By having them separate and then having a body who can combine intelligence on a need to know basis, I think that was a good development that came out of 9-11. Do we need to know about aliens? <laughs> I would like to know about aliens. <laughs> Andy's done a bunch of work. <laughs> on the alien front. Yeah, it would be. It's so fascinating because I find the alien thing so fascinating because it just opens up so many doors. Is it aliens? Is it military R&D? Is it somebody else's R&D? Is it just natural phenomena that science hasn't really discovered yet? It could be any of those things, but all of those things are fascinating. So no matter what it is, I'm like, yeah, let's explore it. Somebody asked in my audience, they're like, are we being probed by aliens? <laughs> could be. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I haven't noticed, but. <laughs> oh my God. Another thing that I thought was really funny in your other interview with Concrete was that Andy says something about like lifting up skirts. What was that line? <laughs> like the more people that you connect with, the more skirts you see under, and then you're like, maybe I didn't need to see that or something. Yes. Yes. So privately, we are pretty crass <laughs> in our analogies. And sometimes that comes out for Andy. I'm usually pretty good at censoring myself in public. Yeah. It's the whole idea that, you know, you, you look at an industry or you look at a group of people 
and you have this idea about them, but the more you get to know about the behind the scenes of the industry, and the more you get to know the actual people involved, the more you essentially, you know, you see a pretty girl, she has a nice figure, she's wearing a skirt, but then you look under the skirt and you're like, oh, like maybe it's, maybe it's not even a she, like, like surprise, you know, (laughs) like you never know, right? So It's the idea that the more you get to know about something, the more enlightened you become. And suddenly you're like, oh, that is not what I thought it was going to be. Or, you know, maybe it's better, maybe it's worse. But oftentimes you're like, okay, I get the reality now. I mean, I feel like that that can be applied to everything. That can be applied to CIA. That can be applied to marriage. That can be applied to business. To parenting. (laughs) Except parenting, there's, as soon as you lift up that skirt, there's no putting it back down. All of a sudden you're just, you're in it. (laughs) You're like, all right, this is, this is it. (laughs) Yeah. You know, and no matter how many books you read or no matter how ready you feel you are for it, talk about how it takes over your life. Yeah. So nothing prepared us. I read so many books. We both did. We read so, I read so many books about pregnancy and about parenting none of it ready, you know, it made me ready for parenthood. And I think the biggest example was after we had our son, that's when we left the CIA because, you know, we had this baby and suddenly, you know, we have our maternity leave, we go back to work and we're suddenly like, oh, like we don't, you don't just fold a baby into your previous life. Like the baby takes over your whole life. And then we didn't want to make the sacrifices that came with having the baby in daycare all day long, like rushing to drop him off, rushing because I mean, our daycare hours were really only like eight and a half hours long. So you factor in traffic and we're like rushing both ends. And then Andy was going into management and he was being called in to stay late. And then, you know, they want you to go on missions and you're, you're like, I just, I don't want to leave my baby. <laughs> like this. You know, like I want to focus on my family. That's what ended up happening to us was we were like, you know, Before we were really focused on the mission and it's really easy to do that as a young couple without kids. And once we had the baby, we were like, you know, we could continue to focus on the mission, put baby second, or we could focus on the family and figure out some other way. So we decided to leave and we ended up leaving for a a remote positions. Both of us got remote positions. So we were able to be home all the time. It worked out really well for us. And I think it helped us adjust in a way we decided to homeschool after having our baby in, in a daycare for a couple of years. We're like, you know, let's just bring him home. That was a big adjustment. <laughs> so, but yeah, just, just like you said, nothing prepares you. I think because you can't, every child is different. So no book can really prepare you for your child. It can give you ideas. And that's what we tell the advice we give now to new parents is, you know, get all the advice you can for ideas because your baby is your baby and your family is your family. And if, you know, you have to figure out what works for you guys, because it's not one size fits all, you know, your mom might tell you, oh, I did this with you guys and you turned out fine. It's not one size fits all. Figure out what works. It's going to be a bumpy road. It's constantly changing, but you know, that's how you, you're just learning along the way. I think one of the things we took from the CIA that was applicable was the CIA gives you all of this base training on how to do tradecraft and how to do your job. But in the mission, in when you're live in a situation, things are constantly changing. There's no manual for you to look at to be like, oh, the guy I was supposed to meet with showed up, but he brought a friend. So, you know, like on the spot, 
Like you have to use all the training that you've had to just improvise. And I think parenthood is a lot like that. You take all the training you can get, but in the moment you're constantly just improvising. You're doing your best. And then you're doing like after action reports afterwards with your spouse to be like, so, uh, <laughs> yeah. so I tried a bath instead of a shower with the babe, like seemed to work out. <laughs> like, let's try it again. <laughs> and then you're like, or, you know, so what age can I do that? Yeah, yeah, exactly. (laughs) Yeah, you're like, so I tried uh, co-sleeping with the kids. That didn't work out really well. We'll have to try something different. (laughs) Like, how do I get that thing that attaches to the bed? Yeah. Oh my gosh. Like the first time you switch them out of the crib and they're like rolling off the the twin size bed and you're like, okay, so that didn't work out. How do we fix that? (laughs) Yeah, definitely had a kid or two drop out of the bed. Oh my gosh, our son fell out of a bunk. We were, we used to live in an RV. We lived in an RV for six months and the railing we had set up in the top bunk came loose and he rolled right out of the top bunk and it was so frightening. Two o'clock in the morning, we hear this thud and we're like, oh my gosh, like (laughs) I was so terrified after that. But you know, we like, after that, we bought all this rope. We like extra secured (laughs) the railing. I was like, I'm a horrible parent. (laughs) Did you go to the ER? No, we sat up with him for a while. And we didn't know until the morning how bad he, it, the fall was. So we sat up with him and, you know, we held him and we made sure he was okay. And then in the morning he was like, I have a headache, my body hurts. I'm like, and then we measured the fall and I was like, oh my gosh, guys. So, you know, we just, we made him as comfortable as we could, but every, he was okay. He was just, you know, I think bruised up ibuprofen, lots of movies. Yeah. Poor kid, man. Yeah. That is very scary. I feel like with the first one too, we were just like every single, you know, runny nose or difficulty breathing. (laughs) We were just going to the ER way too frequently. Like we were a wreck. Yeah. So with our first, funny enough, like all of his injuries, we didn't go we only went to the ER like a couple of times, the urgent care a couple of times when he he got like, you know, pneumonia once and he got the illness that's in the Velveteen rabbit, scarlet fever. I was on a business trip and Andy calls me and he was like, he was like, he has scarlet fever. I was like, does that still exist? <laughs> because the Velveteen rabbit is a very old book. I was like, doesn't that kill people? He's like, well, apparently they can, you know, they can just treat it with antibiotics these days. I think pre-antibiotics, it was deadly. But I was like, who gets scarlet fever? But yeah, our first, every time he fell, he would injure his mouth. Every single time he fell right on his mouth to the point where the dentist is like, oh, he looks like he has a lot of dental trauma. I'm like, yes. Our second, every time she fell, she would hit her head in the same spot. So I swear to you to this day, you can see this little indentation on her head where I'm like, how many times are you going to fall and hit your head on that spot? Like, I can't only get rid of so much furniture. <laughs> you know? Oh my gosh, that's rough. That's yeah. crazy. How have you been able to juggle them being at home and running your own business? It's challenging. Andy and I have different roles in the business, which is really helpful. So Andy is really kind of the face of our business. He does a lot of the talking. He does most of the talking. And I really run the behind the scenes. I like to do focused work. You know, I run all the the software platforms and that's what I enjoy doing. So it's really been a good match for us, but it gets challenging when we have to work at the same time. So he'll travel to do podcasts or he'll travel to do a TV show. And then it's really hard to get focused work done with the kids around because they're here all the time. So 
we've had really good luck over the years with two different nannies and we've brought in other childcare, but really, it's really hard to find somebody. It's not just finding somebody good, but finding somebody who clicks with your family and your family culture, which we learned the hard way. (laughs) So we had a really amazing nanny when we lived in the UAE. And unfortunately, COVID separated us and we weren't able to, to bring her to the United States. But now we have this really amazing nanny who also helps us with the business. So she's this really smart, go-getting young woman who is like a big, she's like the the oldest child we never had. If we had met and had children when we were 20, she would be our daughter, right? I mean, that's how well she fits into the family. And then because she has so much gumption, she's so smart, we are able to kind of switch roles with her as well, where we're able to spend time with the kids while she does something for the business, right? Runs a training program. She just picks up on everything. So she's been a real blessing to our family. I honestly don't know what we would do without her. I know one day she'll leave the nest, like leave our nest and, and go do her own amazing things. But we're kind of, we're hoping that the kids are getting to a point where we're hoping that if we're lucky, you know, our current nanny will move on to her own, you know, adventure around the same time that our children will be able to be fairly self-sufficient. My 10-year-old is already at a point where normally if my nanny and my husband travel during the same period of time, I'll try to find, you know, somebody to fill in for a few hours so I can get some work done. And my 10-year-old was like, you know what, mom? She's like, I don't really want a babysitter. I was like, well, what's your, we negotiate a lot with the kids. The kids have a lot of say. So I was like, okay, so, you know, what's your, what's your proposal, you know, because if I have to do some work, how do we do this? And he was like, well, he's like, I can help. Like I can watch my sister. I, he's like, I can make sandwiches. I can make food for us. You know, he's like, if I can make any kind of food that we don't have to cook, he's like, I can clean up after us. I can play with my sister. She's like, I can turn on the TV. (laughs) All right. I was like, we'll give it a shot. So yeah, so we're going to start trying that now because he's, he has been showing that he can be responsible. So it's pretty amazing. I love that stage. Does he still believe in Santa Claus? So we have never done Santa Claus as, so I had this really traumatic experience as a child (laughs) with Santa Claus. My mom is the best liar ever. And my sister and I both believed in Santa Claus. I believed in Santa Claus wholeheartedly until I was 10 when my fifth grade math teacher who looked like Santa Claus was one day in class was like, nobody still believes in Santa Claus, do they? And I almost raised my hand until I looked around and I was like, and then my I went home crying and my mom started laughing and showed me all these photos of my mom and my dad, like writing the Santa Claus card and eating the cookies. And I was totally traumatized. I was so furious. And then the same thing happened to my sister, but I think my sister was like 13 when that happened and we, it just ruined everything. So while the years that we believed were magical, the truth telling was so traumatizing that I convinced Andy, you know, we decided together, but I, I really pushed for us never to tell a lie. So we have always talked about Santa Claus as like Santa Claus is in your heart. And there's always a gift from Santa Claus, but they know that we put it there. But Santa Claus is more of like, he used to be a real person. Now there's these great stories about him, you know, the concept of Santa and what it all means. And he lives in your heart. So we kind of took that tack because I just couldn't 
bring myself to have to deal with, you know, it, my mom came from a family where they guessed. So she was like, no big deal. Like we knew it wasn't, you know, we knew it wasn't real, but my sister and I didn't know it wasn't real. And my, I think the kids are a lot like me. So I don't, I didn't want that to be like the first breaking of trust <laughs> between us, the first big lie. What about the tooth fairy? So we talk about the tooth, we do do the tooth fairy, but it's again, not I feel like I think my mom's tactic was to be really over the top to convince you, right? To convince you of the magic. So we do talk about the tooth fairy, but I think that one's pretty obvious that they know it's not a real fairy that comes. <laughs> so, you know, they negotiate the price with us, how much that tooth is going to cost. <laughs> and what's funny is um, they've lost teeth in many different countries. <laughs> so it's always the local currency. So it's kind of whatever sounds good. <laughs> I think in the UAE, they actually got paid quite a bit more because of how the exchange went than they do in the United States. What did you notice about cultural differences in living in some of these places with your family? So there's always an adjustment when we go overseas. I think the kids are fairly insulated because no matter where they travel, there's a difference. So whether they're traveling in the United States, every place you go is a little bit different. Every landscape you go to. So like we spent a summer a couple of years ago in Maine. The Maine landscape is very, the Maine landscape and culture and everything up there is very different from Florida. So it's kind of like being in another country. <laughs> You know, I think the UAE was probably the place where it seemed the most different. And I would say it seemed the most different because it's so much, it was the most diverse place we've ever been. So the UAE has the majority of its population are expats from other countries. So, I mean, they're from Bangladesh and Sri Lanka and Pakistan and Australia and UK and, you know, from all over the world, India, you know, local, you know, other closer Middle Eastern countries, the, the Emiratis themselves are there. So it was so, such a diverse population. I think that that was the place where there was the biggest noticeable difference, but to the kids, there was a playground, there were other kids, there was no string cheese, but there was yellow cheese with, you know, the cheddar cheese. <laughs> so that was good enough for them. <laughs> so, kids are so adaptable. That's, kind of, that's really oh true. Gosh, yeah. As long as you can find like a couple good staple food items and a park and they can make yeah. friends. I feel like that's really all they need. Yeah. We were in Portugal last year and same thing. There was, they loved Portugal and all they talk about are the chocolate croissants and the playgrounds and the kids at the playground. And even though the kids didn't speak, no, none of the kids there spoke English. We met one girl who was from Utah and she spoke English and Chinese. Her mom spoke quite a bit of Chinese to her, but they were like, whatever, we'll play. And we ended up having play dates with them. And then the local kids, you know, as long as you know a few words of, or do they just point a few words, like I think like Captain America, <laughs> Captain America, Superman, you know, <laughs> they get it. Yeah, it works. What else I thought was interesting about your story is that your parents were adventurers too. They still are. Yeah. Yeah. And what's interesting is that I feel like I, my sense of travel, like my desire to travel was instilled by my parents because that's all I remember doing. And my mom always drove home that most American kids, at least where we lived in Florida, didn't travel like we did. And as I got older, I realized how many people never left the city that they were born in, which, you know, and then later I learned, you know, only like 25% of Americans even have passports. You know, it really, it is pretty amazing to think that how special that was for me growing up and traveling all over the world. Andy's interesting because his family didn't travel like that. They weren't 
adventurers. You know, I think maybe they drove to Ohio from Pennsylvania. He spent some summers in Arizona with his with his grandmother, but I, he didn't travel overseas until he was with the Air Force Academy in his early 20s. And so it was really a pleasant surprise for me when we met that he had this great interest not only in other cultures and traveling, which was important to me, but in other languages, because he had learned Chinese, which is a very difficult language in my, in my own opinion. <laughs> but the fact that he had learned, he had taken the time to learn Chinese, where I had had a previous long-term relationship where the gentleman I'd been with had lived in Okinawa on a base. Um, his dad was a Marine and he lived in Okinawa for five years, never learned Japanese at all. And I was like, how can you live in Japan and actually never learn the language? And so I was really just surprised, like pleasantly surprised and pleased that Andy had these same interests and like the the desire to, to learn these things. Do you think you have a knack for languages? On the aptitude test, <laughs> it does show that I have a fairly high aptitude to pick up language. I think it's also helpful that when I was young, we moved to Japan when I was, I was born in Venezuela and then I moved to Japan when I was two and I lived there until I was six. So my first three languages were English, Spanish, and Japanese. So I remember when we moved to the United States when I was six, I had all three languages. And then over time, without somebody to speak Japanese to, eventually that that language faded. But because I have the foundation, they talk about too, you know, kids, there's this foundational age where if you start to learn another language, then when you become an adult, it's much easier. And if you already knew a language, it comes back to you. So my mom was actually a dependent. Her dad was in the army. And so as a child, she learned French because they were stationed in France. My uncle, who's a little bit older than her, learned German because they were stationed in Germany. For her, the easy languages, you know, to pick back up, or French. And then she learned Spanish all on her own. She didn't know any Spanish when she moved to Venezuela with my dad. And she learned it all on her own. She lived there like, you know, 10 years. So yeah, I think, I don't know if it runs in the family, but I, I think there's a definite, you know, my dad also speaks, my dad also speaks a number of languages. He is from Venezuela, so Spanish. He learned English when he came to the States. He learned Japanese when we moved to Japan. He speaks some Italian and some French from having spent some time overseas. So yeah, it's just, I, I definitely think there's an aptitude and an interest and a, a, a foundation that was created for me early on that makes it a little bit easier. And I'm you, hoping to do that with our kids. You're hoping to do that for your kids. Are you yeah. teaching them different languages now? So we started when my first was born, we started teaching him Spanish, but then it got to a certain point where I wasn't confident it's funny enough, I studied Spanish in university and I also uh, did a number of things in Spanish for the agency, but speaking to a three-year-old in Spanish wasn't something I was used to. So a lot of the colloquialisms that you say to your three-year-old, you know, I could have talked to him about politics all day, but to talk to him about using the potty or do you have a tummy ache or, you know, would you like, you know, to eat broccoli with cheese for dinner. Like I didn't have those words. <laughs> so eventually that kind of fell off. And then when we had our second, you know, it was just English all the time. But when we went to Portugal, we started working on Portuguese with them. And then we recently went to Mexico and we've been working on Spanish with them. So it's definitely much easier when you're in country. I find that, uh, so like when we went to Mexico recently, my Spanish picked right back up. In the months before we left, I felt really rusty. But as soon as my ear was constantly picking up the sounds of Spanish, it came right back. And the kids suddenly, 
my son suddenly starts translating this cartoon in Spanish to his sister. I'm like, where did you even pick up these words? <laughs> definitely like I would like to make a more concerted effort, but they're picking it up already. It's definitely worth the effort. That's so cool. Yeah, I don't feel like I have that aptitude, although I have studied many different languages. I have a cousin who can speak eight languages. I even one of my mm-hmm. great grandparents, he spoke eight languages. I definitely think there are some people that <laughs> are better at it. Yeah. Well, I've also learned with age that the different ways of learning. So I learned just in the house, right? Household, English, Spanish, Japanese. And then I went to college. I went to school. I studied Spanish in school. And then at the agency, we studied some Japanese, you know, and in another formal setting, I studied some Korean in another formal setting. We studied Thai in another formal setting with a Thai instructor. And when we studied Thai, that was the first time that we didn't study the writing system right away. We just studied how to speak. And that was my first introduction to the method of language learning, where you just speak it. And speaking has always been the most difficult for me. And I've come to realize over time and experience that that really is, at least for me and for, I think, more practical use, conversation is the way to go when you're learning a language. You hear it, you repeat it, you speak it over and over. And I think part of it, what I've realized is that it's the muscle memory in your mouth because every sound is created by muscles in your mouth. So your mouth is used to making English language sounds. Other languages have other sounds that the muscles in your mouth have to get used to making. So the more you use it, it's like exercising, right? Like the more you use it and the more you do emotion or like learning to dance, right? The more you practice a dance motion, your muscle creates a memory of what that dance motion feels like. So your your mouth is the same way. It gets used to practicing and using the muscles and making the motion to make the sound. In recent years, that's the tack that I've been taking is really focusing, you know, I'm stronger at reading and writing but really focusing on the conversation piece and practicing just saying things over and over again. So recall, using the recall and then creating that muscle memory. So that that's my newfound knowledge <laughs> on, on learning languages, right? Especially if you're using, if you're using them, like if you want to be conversational in a language, that's the way I would go for sure. Yeah, I, I would agree. I think I was the most afraid to try to speak it. Like I could translate yeah. reading a paragraph, right. but then speaking it is much harder. Yeah. Yeah. And so that's definitely, you know, I think a great place to focus. And then the reading and the writing can come later. Interesting. Are you yeah. at all a musician? Have you ever tried to learn music? I did piano for a long time until from like preschool to middle school. I would love to pick it back up. We have, you know, we bought a keyboard for the kids. My daughter plays, you know, keys on the the piano. We've done some YouTube videos with her. She picks it up really fast. She's very music. She's very artistically and musically inclined. My son's asking for a drum set. <laughs> so, you know, Andy plays the ukulele and is learning the guitar and plays the piano. So there's definitely this interest there. And I remember enjoying the piano. I think it was just, you know, when you're a middle schooler, the idea of practicing for an hour every day and having to, I had this big thing about cutting my nails short time. <laughs> my, my piano teacher would yell at me about like, your nails are too long. They're clicking on the piano. And I'm like, well, I want to paint my nails. <laughs> so That's funny yeah. because my daughter had to cut her nails for basketball. Like she's <laughs> yeah. so girly, but she's like, it's a sacrifice, you know? 
Oh, good for her. Yeah. I was not willing to make that sacrifice back then. Yeah. Wow. I definitely. I would love to know like your thoughts around legacy because I know for Andy, it's more than just money. Yeah. So legacy has been definitely been a concept introduced to me by Andy. I've always thought of legacy as something purely financial, you know, like you leave your kids a trust fund, that's a legacy. Andy has really helped me as he often does broaden my perspective. So now I think of legacy as, you know, what is the more impact, right? Like what's the impact you're bringing to your family and to the world that your, not your ancestors, your future children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren that they can look back on and be like, oh yeah, my mom, my dad did this thing, left this thing behind. I find the concept so fascinating because it's so forward thinking. You know, I never think about what are my great, great, great grandchildren going to think about me? You know, not until Andy brought this up. You know, I don't really think about beyond my own children. (laughs) So, you know, the idea of leaving leaving something behind, making an impact on the world, you know, hopefully setting them up financially as well, but, you know, leaving the legacy of planting ideas in our family culture, creating a family culture that lasts, right? Creating a family culture that is impactful to others, you know, creating a business that can impact people's lives. I mean, Andy really... I was in the beginning, I had my own ideas of business. I come from a very, my mom's side is very liberal. And I had this very, (laughs) this very liberal idea of, you know, business bad. (laughs) So, you know, money hungry business people. But now that we are running our own business and I see how Andy approaches the business, it really is to help people. I mean, you can, it's making a living for your family through a business and helping others is not mutually exclusive, you know? So he's really building something where he wants to impact people's lives for the better and leave that legacy for our kids. And I just think it's just this amazing, it's been really eye-opening. One thing about being married to Andy is that, you know, I always tell people like marriage is not easy. I always had this very romantic idea of what marriage was, and that is not it. So it is not easy in any way, but I, because I picked the right partner, I have had so much personal growth that it makes the hard times worth it. We have to, you know, it's really painful to have those conversations when you're angry, but once you get past it, you're like, oh, you know what? Like we have grown so much. Like I have personally grown so much as a person just by taking in Andy's ideas because he's so different than I am. So, and then I have also impacted him in other ways. So, you know, it's just really, it's incredible. Do you ever go to bed angry? I am guilty of going to bed angry. isn't and whoever says don't do that yeah right oh I know it's always the older generation it's like don't go to bed angry and I, and I know they're speaking from experience and from regrets but it's so hard I mean those moments where like you have already talked yourself out and it is midnight and your kids are gonna wake up in six hours and I'm like you know I just I'm a slow processor Like I'm a verbal processor and I'm a slow processor. And so I need space. So that's one of the differences between us is Andy doesn't need space. He like, he fires off the ideas and he can resolve an issue right then and there. But I need a break. I need to let it sink in. I need to have my own ideas and then come back. So it's really difficult for me sometimes to not go to bed angry. I think we try to have this middle ground where I'm like, you know, I want to acknowledge that I love him and I care, I value what he's saying. 
and I validate his feelings, but I really need a minute. <laughs> like I really need my eight hours of sleep so that I, we can have a better conversation about this. And can we please put it on pause? So I think we've recently in the last few years gotten to a point where I can ask him to, can we please pause this conversation because I need time to process. And, you know, now we're at a point where he, he gets it. He's like, okay, it doesn't feel great, but it's better in the end for sure. Okay. So when your kids are going to start dating and finding (laughs) who they want, what are some things that you didn't know, like about marriage that you might think they need, they they would need to think about what what needs to be on their list of expectations, not just find somebody who you want to travel with or take nice walks on the beach with, but like, what else do they really need to think about? Yeah. So I think that the first is that the the other person has to, because I've had my own really bad relationships, like both parties have to completely, just like you said earlier, trust each other and respect the other person. If your partner is doing something disrespectful, when you're young, you can work through those issues. But that's that's the thing is you have to be able to work through the issues. If somebody's disrespectful to you and you raise it to them and they don't change, that's they're out. The respect and the trust has to be there and the communication has to be there. They have to be willing to work on it with you. If they're with a partner who's like, you know, I don't need to change you know, or I don't want to talk about it out of there. Right. Like that's not going to work over the course of the next 70 years for you. Right. Cause bigger challenges are going to come up than being late for a date. Okay. So you have to be able to trust, respect, talk it out. That's the most important thing. And then my biggest advice is if I, um, we write these journals for them. So when they're older, they, you know, they have a history, like since they've been born, they've been writing in these journals. You know, my biggest advice is going to be when you decide you want to have children, you have to recognize that as soon as you get pregnant, your whole life is changed. In that moment, your whole life is different. There is no going back to the pre-baby you guys, right? And then once the child is actually born, you're not just folding them into your current life. Like you are beginning a new adventure that is the children, right? So the first, because those first five years with kids, the first five years for each kid is rough. (laughs) So during that time, like you can, you can have adventures, but your adventures are really going to be for the kids. You're not going to go off for a weekend skiing, probably, you know, maybe if you're lucky enough to have grandparents to watch the kids, but it's, it's going to be few and far between, you know, like your adventure really is raising those kids, loving those kids, spending all this amazing time with them, right? Like troubleshooting all the difficult things. That is the adventure, right? And then when they get older, you can have different adventures, do all the stuff you want to do as two single people before you have kids. (laughs) That's my advice. Just wait. There's plenty of time. Don't worry about it. Yeah. Also, I would love to know your thoughts on how do families come into play as far as how you raise children and how you have a relationship? Like your extended family? Like, yeah. Where you come from? So it's been challenging for us. Andy came from a place where he, maybe it was a little easier for him because he came from a childhood where he didn't want to repeat what his parents did. So his whole mindset was, I'm going to do exactly the opposite of what my parents did. For me, I came from a very traditional family and I loved my parents. I mean, as, as I grew up, I came to understand through a lot of therapy, (laughs) I came to understand, you know, certain things in the way I was raised that caused issues for me later in life. 
but my memories of childhood are full of love and adventure. And so in the beginning, it was very difficult for me to really pinpoint how I wanted to raise my children differently than my parents had raised me. There were a few very clear things, but you know, you have a partner and you have to agree on how you're going to raise the children. So in the very beginning, there was a lot of back and forth on how would we raise the kids? You know, like I like to watch TV. Andy wanted zero TV. Like, I was like, well, you know, if you leave me and then, you know, if you leave me alone with the kids, I'm probably going to end up turning the TV on, not just for the kids, but because for me, I like it. So, you know, little things, you know, and then, so you have to come to it as a couple, you have to agree, you have to really put a lot of thought into how do I want to raise my kids? Like, who are my kids? How do I want to raise them? We take the optic of, you know, what adult am I raising? Not what kid am I raising? What adult am I raising? So I, we try to raise them, like keeping everything in the, at the right developmental level for them. But with the idea of this is the adult I want them to be, the adult I want them to be can make their own decisions, is comfortable negotiating, right? Is respectful to people, but, you know, can stand their own ground to protect themselves. So we try to instill those things. And then after all of that, you know, your parents and siblings and other people like to comment on what you're doing. <laughs> And so you just have to, that, I think that has been the most difficult because then you have to really gather the courage to tell your parents that I'm raising my children differently, not because I thought you sucked in any way, but like, because there were certain things about my childhood that I would like to do differently. And so you have to kind of save face for them, right? Save their ego while also explaining to them and standing your own ground about why you're doing what you're doing, right? My, when I started, when we started homeschooling the kids, there were so many questions and we had to stand up and be like, you know, it's, it's, I think Sino was six when he started reading. My oldest was six when he started reading. And I had to, you know, my mom would call, you know, is he reading it? Is he reading it? You were reading when you were three. Well, you know, he's not going to be 18 and not be able to read. It's totally fine. He's a late bloomer. He takes his time. It's okay. There's definitely a lot of personal growth. Like, I, I feel like that's when you really grow into an adult, when you start to have these conversations with your own parents, where like, you know, I'm making this decision. This is why I respect the decisions that you made when you were in my shoes, but this is the way we're moving forward, you know, and, and, and I hope that you respect the decisions that I'm making as well. I yeah. heard you say in that other interview too, that you felt like you were finally living your own life, like after you left the CIA. Yeah. You know, it's, Interesting. For me, the CIA was really, really like a benchmark. It was a, it was a goal for me. So my whole life I'd spent doing what I, what was expected of me. So I did well in school. I went to college. I went to grad school. I got this really nice job, you know, with the federal government, you know, it was a, you know, a really fun place to work too. You know, it was, you know, kind of like prestigious in a way I'd arrived. I was like, I have arrived. <laughs> you know, I'm here, you know, I was only, I was 27 when I started working there. I'm like, I made it. My parents were so proud. So when Andy pitched leaving, I was like, huh, what does that mean? <laughs> I, was like, I was like, I don't know what else I would do. And I actually spent several years. It took me several years to figure out, to kind of let go of that goal, to kind of close that chapter and be like, okay, I made it. I made that, that goal. I completed that chapter the way I wanted to, but now I have to start this new chapter and that's okay. 
and it's not scary. It's just new and we have to figure it out from here. So yeah, it was really interesting because it really was growing up, really kind of leaving, stepping away from the expectations that had been laid on me my whole life. We were doing something totally new and unexpected. His parents and my parents, they were all like, oh, you're going to leave? <laughs> like, yeah, you know, and for, for Andy, he was very confident the whole time. You know, he's like, this is the best decision for me. It took several years to be like, you know what? We made the best decision. Like, okay. Like, yeah, we're forging our own path now. But even in the CIA too, I heard that you had to really think about your beliefs. Like you were raised liberal and with yeah. Buddhism and then yeah. went to school and learned about progressivism mm -hmm. and yeah it was quite the journey yeah it was from a liberal family to surrounding myself with liberal and then very progressive friends and then going to law school where everything was very conservative and I felt myself it was fascinating law school because I really felt myself get pulled to the center because you are suddenly surrounded by different viewpoints and it's so amazing how infrequent it is for people to surround themselves with people of different viewpoints points. But here I was in a school full of different viewpoints. And it was just amazing. It was so eye opening. And so I became really centered at that point, you know, with a few left leanings in places. And then I went to the agency, where, you know, technically, you're everybody's apolitical, but in reality, everybody has their own viewpoints on things, right? But it really was an environment, another environment where there were these really bright people, people who I respect so much, that are so bright and talented and driven you know, protecting our national security with all these different viewpoints. And they, and they don't, they speak in a very respectful manner to each other, right? I mean, they can discuss issues without throwing punches, right? Like they, you know, in an intelligent way. And then working at the CIA, there's so much, I think one, I do think one of the things that they hire for people who can work in a gray area, people who don't see things as purely black and white, because when you work in something like intelligence or law enforcement, things aren't black and white. There's tons of gray area in between. And you have to be comfortable functioning in that and still feel, still have integrity, right? While working in a gray area, right? And have you, so that environment really helped me kind of take a step back, I think, from my beliefs, you know, like, I know what my beliefs are and I know what, how I feel about a lot of things, but I also know that there's a different viewpoint. And then that viewpoint oftentimes is just as valid as mine. Every scenario has to be case by case. And really it's dialogue. I think that people need to be having, you know, deliberate dialogue where they're not trying necessarily to prove their side right. They're just trying to have an exchange of ideas. And then if something needs to get done, then try to come to a consensus, right? Meet in the middle. Yeah, it was, it was, an, it was an incredible environment to work in. Yeah. That's amazing. And I feel like, honestly, that's a message that the whole world needs right now. Yeah. Yeah. It's really tough looking at our politicians because it, it just, it seems like a game that people are only interested in winning. <laughs> You know, but by interacting the way that they do, everybody loses, you know, they're not setting, even if one side gets what they want, the way that they go about it means that in the future, we're all losers, right? Nobody's coming to a compromise. Nobody's coming to a dialogue. We're all having our attention focused on things that potentially aren't even the core issue. It would be nice 
if, you know, in the grand scheme of things, more dialogue could happen, you know, both sides, you know, instead of sound bites, actual dialogue, because the sound bites aren't helpful at all. And you're not getting the full story. No, the story is always more complex than it's made out to be always. So, I mean, that's exactly the media presents things, politicians present things in very black and white. You know, we're right, they're wrong, this is right, this is wrong, black and white. It's never that way, ever, ever. Is there anything that you'd like to ask my dad? (laughs) You know what? I would love, I would love to hear his advice for a newlywed couple. Ooh, Yeah. Yeah. I'm so, because as I age and gain more experience, my, just like I was saying, my advice changes, right? So somebody who's raised like a successful daughter of their own, right? Do you have siblings? I have two. Successful children, right? Like grandchildren of their own, like what is their advice, right? Like what can they help us with? Like That's a good one. I love that. And it really ties back to the beginning of the conversation too. That's so good. Yeah, I I would love it. Yeah, all the data points I can get to be successful here. (laughs) That's so good. Can I ask one more question? We don't have to include this, but is there anything about the Epstein story that you can talk about? That's a very high profile case. I mean, power can come in so many forms. I mean, you could be the manager of like a Wendy's and be in a position of power and be doing the same kind of stuff. It's not going to make the same news, right? But to me, it's not as far reaching, I'm sure. But yeah, it's just, it's a shame. It's a shame that that happens. I truthfully do love the podcast that you and your husband are putting together. And I do feel like there's so many valuable lessons from the CIA that can apply to everyday people. So mm-hmm. yeah, just go ahead and promote away and, and let people know how they can <laughs> find you and all of that good stuff. Yes. So Andy, and then some seasons, Andy and I have these podcast episodes. They're like these 20 minute daily lessons and you can find it by looking up everyday espionage, but our business, because espionage is a very long word, our business is actually everyday spy. So if you go to everydayspy.com backslash quiz, we have this great, like find your spy superpower quiz. And then it'll tell you, you know, are you an analyst or a tech op or a covert operator? It'll, you know, tell you your strengths and your weaknesses. And then, you know, have like a little lesson for you, like a little spy lesson. So it's a lot of fun, but yeah, just, you know, if you're into podcasts, Everyday Espionage is the place to go, you know, and you can listen to Andy's soothing voice as he teaches you on your 20 minute commute. (laughs) I love how it's like short bits too, that you can get one little lesson for, for the day. That's, it's really easy to listen to like you said. Yeah. And he's great. Cause he tells, you know, he's always like, he has, he's this great storyteller. So every podcast has this, you know, not just the lesson, but like a great story with it. And it's, you know, I, I just, I find him entertaining, right? Because I'm going to spend the rest of my life with him. <laughs> I better find him entertaining. <laughs> He is definitely entertaining. Oh my gosh. That one lesson though, about the medicine man, I even mentioned that like in the episode with him, that was such a beautiful lesson and story. So somebody from your crew gave a medicine man their clothing because it was cold out and he wasn't dressed for this TV shoot. And then it was completely like an unexpected gift. And then I think a day or so later, he came back and gave that audio engineer 
pioneer, a special spear that was in his family for decades. And it really, oh, it just hit so hard with me. Like how many times do we give gifts? And we're like, oh, by the way, I got you a baby gift. You know, like constantly be letting people know that you got them a gift, but just do it because you want to without announcing it. Yeah. It's really the intention that goes with it. You know, and people can feel that. So yeah. Such a beautiful, beautiful story. Yeah. Is there anything that I didn't ask you that you want to share? Are you a morning person or would you rather sleep in? No, (laughs) I sleep in. (laughs) I joke that I ruined Andy because when we were first together, he used to ding awake like 6.37 in the morning and be like, rise and shine. Like, let's get up and get active. And I'm like, until nine o'clock, like, where's my pancakes? I'm so the same way. I feel like we have so much in common, but I love that that works for you guys and that he loves that about you. Yeah. And I, and same thing. Now I wake up, he wakes up later. I wake up earlier. You know, it's the influence you have on your, on your partner. I think they make you, if they make you better people, I read this somewhere. If they make you a better person, then that's the right person, right? That's what they should be doing. Yeah. Amen to that. I love that. Thank you so much for coming on. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. You've heard from my mom. Now, let's switch it over to Grandpa. Quite a love story, right? Jihee is giving you, really, a very interesting conversation about communication. What I found to be quite amazing is that these agencies learn how to manipulate people. They learn how to use every trick that they can come up with, and they look at things that relationships are built by the transaction, meaning that you do something, you expect to get something in return. Isn't that the way a lot of people act naturally out there? That I'm we really constantly live, bringing that up. That we live in a society where relationships are transactional only, where nobody really gives a darn about anybody else unless they get something out of it. And that's not the way communication and human beings are supposed to be. They're supposed to mature to help each other where we're trying to have a united world and a united people. Everyone would do much better if there was really communication of honesty and love and where humanity really does stand for something and not where it's do something for me. And if you're not going to pay me back or do it right, I never want to talk to you again. I never want to see you again. I don't want to have anything to do with you. And this manipulation that they learn in the agency, and yet the people that are working in the agencies are from all different walks of life, and they respect each other's point of view and usually come up with a middle road. And isn't that what politicians are supposed to be doing also? And yet, deep down, they might think that, but as you know, when they go on TV, it's only their side is right and the other side is wrong, where you don't have that middle road that used to be in our country when it came to politics, that you did have compromise and you did have both sides of the aisle be able to meet a happy medium on things. They didn't always get what they wanted, but they came up with something that was good for everyone and the people by putting their political views more central. And that's not occurring right now. And then, of course, when it came to their children and they see the back and forth manipulations They didn't want to trust their own children in today's society. 
where they decided to use their diverse background to say, hey, we're going to filter out some of this nonsense that's going on because we believe we can do a better job and that our legacy is not just about money or financial security for our legacy of our children, but we want to make sure that they understand what truth and working together is really all about and having each other's back. And they wanted to make sure that their children didn't get that manipulation where they actually got the truth and they got honesty and they got love and they got attention to all of their needs. And really, when you have children, you have to make that type of sacrifice because if you really believe in legacy and that they're part of you, that is your main investment in life of having a continuum. And that's why we even have that advice every day on the Better Call Daddy show. I knew you would like that. Oh, yeah, it was a good plug because we don't live forever. But yet, if we want to have impact for more than our years, the only way you're going to be able to do that is to physically participate in and be active in your children and your children's children's lives. This is why some, one of your other guests said, well, Wayne, would you like to live and be able to talk to your great, 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 great grandchildren? Yes, I would like to live and be able to physically talk to them and play with them and go over the ideals that were passed on to me, where you know that the connection is continuing because you're you're there doing it. And she brought up that when you're learning languages or when you're really learning how to do different things, you have to actually participate and do them actively if you're really going to pick it up and that having conversation in a different language is going into a room where people are doing the conversation and not where you just are studying about it or looking at it in a book. You physically have to participate if you want to have results. And I agree with that on almost a broad number of subjects is that you have to participate. You have to be in the game to really understand it and to get better at it. And if you want to be a singer, you got to practice singing. If you want to be a chess player, you got to be there practicing. If you want to be a dancer, you got to be able to go out there on the floor and put on the moves and not just say, oh, well, we'll just put our feet down on the and just follow the carpet of feet. And that's how you learn how to dance. Well, maybe at first, but you have to continue to do it because there isn't always going to be an answer in a book in life. Sometimes you're going to have to figure it out on the fly. And the only way you can figure things out on the fly is by experiencing and knowing what you're doing. How's your chess game? It's gotten better. It's gotten better because Rafi's been playing. So when you have people that you love are participating in a sport or in a, in a business or whatever, and you then want to participate also, it's called encouragement. It's called enthusiasm, where you want to also participate. Look how people have a different opinion about running a business when they have to do it themselves. Then they find out all of the intricacies and all of the things that can go up and down and, and go wrong with a, running a business where you have a totally different perspective. And that's the point, is that the more experiences that you have in doing different things, it makes you a more mature and a better person. And this is what society needs. This is what it takes to run a business. And interesting enough, that's what it takes to even raising a family. What's the advice for a new married couple? Well, if you're going to have children, you have to understand that you have to dedicate most of your life into that continuum that you've now participated in reproduction of yourself. And that's a big job. Okay. Raising four children that you have, Rena, is a big job. 
and a bigger job than anything else. Taking care of children or taking care of parents when they get old is a very, very big job. Everything else seems to be second fiddle to that. It's not just one day here, one day there, is it? Right. But if you want to go on a honeymoon, okay, don't have children right away. Because the truth of the matter is, is that having children is not a nine to five job. It's 24 hours a day, seven days a week, year in and year out, the rest of your life. So it's good to have a good time, but participating in a continuum and having a legacy, believe it or not, is what makes time expand for you. It makes you have a continuum where you live on past your years. Hopefully, science will catch up with us and be able to give us more and more and more years and hopefully healthy years. But without that, the key is to continue to develop your wisdom and your communication. And if you can learn to get along with people that you don't agree with, guess what? That's also a hard job. Bonus points for that. Bonus points for that. And what's interesting as well is that she knows that she loves her husband. She loves her family. And even though she's not sure of what's on the next horizon, but when you have a relationship with someone that you're honest with and you're working with and you're all trying to grow together and not fight with each other and not have things that are going to destroy your relationship, you know that if you have an open mind to the needs of the other person as well as your own, that it's really got to be, as my grandfather would say, is that it's two halves make a whole. And you have to remember that if you are separated, you're not as strong as if you are together. Two halves of one soul. That's right. And that's what young people that are trying to get hooked up and are searching for that love, where you have an open mind that whoever that person's going to be, that they're your friend first, that there's somebody that you can work with, that, that you have common goals and honesty amongst yourselves that whatever is going to happen, that you can work out anything because you're going at it together on everything. And if you don't have trust in that relationship and where you're giving each half the same opportunity to want to develop and grow and be the best that you both can be together, the relationship will fail. Thanks for listening. Now I think I'm going to go call my dad. <laughs> I'll say goodbye and see you the next time. Thanks for listening to the Better Call Daddy show. Join us weekly for new episodes and more daddy wisdom. Better Call Daddy is good advice always. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and share. You can also find special episodes on my YouTube channel. And you can listen on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, Amazon Music, Alexa, or your preferred podcatcher. That's wrap for now.